Good evening. My name is Sharon. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. It's nice to be here, and I want to keep my uh, my manners. We are. Uh, I am from Los Angeles, but I do have manners. <laughs> Some of them don't out there, but uh, doesn't mean I don't work my program, even when they don't care. But uh, thank you. Okay. Hand signals, huh? Okay. There you go. Are you happy now, Dave? Okay. You guys heard that, right? He's happy. All right. But I want to thank uh, Dave very much for asking me and, and all the emails and keeping me in, in check. And, and Joanne, thank you for the cranberry juice in my room. I said, what do you want? I said, cranberry juice. I got two jars, two big bottles of it. So I guess she knew I'm a real alcoholic. Um, <laughs> two of everything is great. But... Um, <laughs> And it's just been sweet being here with you this weekend. Uh, it's a little longer weekend than normal. Um, you know, I had to work really late Thursday night, closing our month. I'm in the finance end of a pretty big law firm, and, and they don't care, you know. Um, <laughs> so I was there till about 11 at night, and um, you know, went home and packed, got a couple hours of sleep, and got on a plane, and then I saw Michael and Ted, and that's just that sweetness of knowing them all these years and seeing her so happy and. And knowing that it was Ted that she married, because when I first heard she was getting married, you know, we get protective of people in AA. It was like, oh, my God, who's she marrying? And what's, you know, and I found out it was Ted, and I love Ted, so I was happy for him, too. And and just it's just been sweet renewing that friendship and, and seeing Billy again, who's going to be speaking tomorrow, who has a couple of months less sobriety than me. But uh, <laughs> we won't hold that against him. Um, <laughs> And, and just, you know, getting to know, I mean, I just, Bob, he's just he's a great guy. And, and being with, you know, having, we were so privileged to have Smitty and Sue this weekend and, and to be, to sit in the, in the, the history and the, um, the depth and the tolerance and the love and the patience that these people have after all these years was just renewing for me. And um, got a couple of naps in, which is a rarity. Normally I go somewhere and there's somebody I'm sponsoring in the next state and they're right there in the, in the room with me. But... This weekend, I got a room by myself, so it was very exciting for me. <laughs> Thank you for that. And, and uh, you know, meeting Jay and, and Charlie and, and Mary and getting to know new new friends on the road. Uh, because I, there's, I swear I could get in my car and drive and never have to buy a cup of coffee. I could just keep ringing doorbells across the country of Alcoholics Anonymous because uh, we're an incredible community of people. You know, you are the fellowship that I craved. I had no idea that I was going to be plopped in the midst of a brand new life on August 20th, 1975. I had no idea. I wasn't looking for it. I didn't want it. I didn't feel worthy of it. I didn't know I could um, have it. Um, and if you would have said, this is for you, kid, I would have gone, no, it's not. And I would have turned and walked away. And the gratitude I feel for having the gift of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous given to me is overwhelming. And I felt that all weekend when I, when I hear the people um, share in the halls and share one-to-one and tap you on the shoulder and give you a hug or a word or um, whatever. I just feel that gratitude that we are the lucky ones because we get to know the program Alcoholics Anonymous because not every alcoholic gets a chance to know what it sits like, what it feels like to sit in a room and to hear Chapter 5 read and to hear hope being shared amongst us. Um, we are the lucky ones. What you do with the gift is absolutely up to you. You know, it's an individual, it's an individual program. Um, what you do with it is uh, your gift back to God. And um, I like to remember that. So it's always so good to be in your presence and to feel filled up, even um, even on the days that, that I don't feel so good. I, you know, I let you guys do it for me, and tomorrow I'll do it for you. Um, but I know that this is where I get... This is where I get fed, is an Alcoholics Anonymous. This is my foundation. This is what I build my entire life on today. Because without, <laughs> I have quality problems today. I mean, I, I called on my phone on Saturday, and there were all my, my babies were painting my, uh, my house. My mother's coming Thursday, so I don't do anything in a small way. I'm doing a lot of remodeling. And uh, <laughs> so the, the dog has been displaced. I haven't slept in my bed for a month. The cats are displaced. My son has moved back in, and so that means that all the neighborhood children are already there in the, the den of computers, you know. It's, uh, believe me, it's nothing like I was at 16. I'm grateful, you know. I'm so grateful. But, um, you know, I talked to the, the head baby, the ex-nun there, cracking the whip, and um, she said that, that they were, you know, well, the closet's kind of a bright white, and this is kind of a, <laughs> it's just, I'm just going, okay. It's a, it's, you know, it's a group project, and, um, you know, but we're, we're going to be ready for my mother on Thursday when my mother comes, because my mother wants to come out and uh, celebrate my 25th birthday with me and and uh, you know that's such a joy because my mother was 
you know, had a lot of sleepless nights not knowing if the next phone call was going to be from me needing something from somewhere on the road or if they had found me somewhere, would I, you know, would they get on a plane and come claim the body? Um, and I am overpaid because my mother sleeps at night because of Alcoholics Anonymous and she knows that I'm sober and in your care. And um, I am definitely overpaid. Because it's not about me. <laughs> you know, my life is just not about me. And I'm so glad because uh, because me, as they talked about it in the book, my little plans. And it doesn't say my grandiose or my extravagant. It says my little plans. And I, I'd like to know that once I get it all down to me and my plans, it's, you know, I can I can hold it in my hand. But when it's Alcoholics Anonymous and God and you and, and uh, whatever will be, I can let go. And just, it's so... It's driving across the country from home to home to home to home to home. It's, you know, I'm a link in the chain of Alcoholics Anonymous, as you are, and my job is to keep my link strong. And as it was talked about today, pass it on exactly how I got it. That is my responsibility. And I had no responsibility when I got here. And, you know, Bob talked about that, too. That was my line. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And, and I had nothing left to lose, but I, you know, I had fun getting to that point of having nothing left to lose. I, I had it all growing up. I grew up in Iowa, and that was my very first resentment when I realized I was uh, kind of that yellow state in the middle of the country, you know, next to the orange state, Nebraska. And, you know, and what, what's Iowa all about? It wasn't about much other than it was an incredible upbringing. I've been doing some writing lately of, of stories growing up and things that happened. And, and I just had just this Tom Sawyer kind of upbringing. It was terrific. But. I don't think I wore shoes, and you know, if I didn't want to, until I was about 13 years old. But at 13 years old, I picked up a drink. At 13 years old, it was Canadian Club and Schlitz beer, and the boys across the river that let me hang out with them, and, and drive with them in their '57 Chevy, and meet all the football boys out there, and Janet, and, and you know, and Cindy Burrish, and some of the girls that just wore those sweaters just right. You know, I don't know how they wore those sweaters, and they just seemed to, you know, they had corsages that would stay on when you pinned them on. You know, and. <laughs> I always liked the boys that would buy me the wrist ones because they knew it would just probably flop right off. But, you know, they were after my heart. I knew that. But, you know, by, by the end of that evening, you know, my little bump stood up. You know, Marilyn Monroe got off the hood of that car. I was chug-a-lugging with the best of them and driving cars and cracking jokes. And, and just right in the center of it, I was relaxed and having fun. And what happened was everybody that talked to me all the time in my head. I was one of those kids that I didn't sleep a lot growing up. Uh, I was uh, I had a lot of fears. I had to check the closet under the bed and the, and the hope chest. And, and, you know, I would watch. I, we lived on a river, and I watched for the souls to I mean, I was, like, really odd. And, and my best friend, Mary Kroll, one night we were sleeping out under the stars, and she asked me about something, and I started to tell her about my head. She didn't talk to me for a couple of years. She didn't invite me over anymore. She didn't talk to me. For... So I learned you don't share that with anybody. And... But what happened was they just all got drunk. You know, they all got focused. They just wanted to party. They all just got into one big voice. And I took a deep breath, and I was able to relax. And I felt whole. And I got, was hungover. I guess I had a blackout. I you know, I don't remember getting home. I remember being hungover that next day in church with the family. But I remember not. I couldn't wait to make it happen again, somehow, some way. And uh, I continued on that path. And as I continued on that path, I, I had double lives going a lot. And I was able to... You know, have the three inches under my name in the yearbook of everything I was involved with and what I was doing, but, you know, I had my double life going with the boys from Cedar Rapids at the Dance More Ballroom or, or Swisher, uh, you know, and those boys from Iowa City that, oh, you dance with them slow and they smell like J.D. East and English leather and they had that V-neck sweaters on and, and, and they would like kind of burp bourbon on you and it was just like, oh, I just love that smell. <laughs> so great. I knew it was out in the car, you know. And so I had kind of this double life going on. And, you know, I am the only alcoholic in my family. I want to point that out. That You know, I've got three other siblings that just waltz their way through their master's degrees and are professional children that never really got in any trouble. And if they did, it was short. You know, they just kind of went in and out of a phase. I went into the phase and just made camp. Um, so... My family was a little confused with me and what I was doing with my life. And, and by the time I was graduating from high school, I'd already been to Washington, D.C. And I like to remember that because there's three points in my life when I hit the White House. 
for the Capitol. And the first one was that I, I won a citizenship trip. I was picked as one of the two outstanding 4-H young citizens of America. And there was a boy and a girl from every state. So there's, you know, a hundred people at the White House having lunch and tea with Lucy Bird and Linda Bird and Lady Bird and all the birds. And you know, I had my little white gloves on and my matching purse, my matching patent leather shoes. And I was all decked out and, you know, a little, just a little kind of a sheath dress. And, and I was drunk. I had met the boys from Virginia. We had gone to some abandoned building. <laughs> And I had gotten drunk, and I was like this, going through the reception line, you know, trying to keep it together there. And, you know, in a couple of years then, I was at the White House, you know, with my big placard, you know, with my peace sign and my one finger and my, you know, <laughs> marching for peace, you know, and um, I didn't know what peace was. Uh, you know, I knew that, you know, I would... I just was angry. But a couple of years later, I was angry. And, and you know, the, the next time I got to go was, uh, it wasn't to the White House, but it was the Capitol, and it was a few years ago because of the Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got to make that full circle. And I got to go back and give back. Um, that's the joy of being here, is that, that um, you know, you get to give back. Um, you get to turn from a taker to a giver. Somewhere along the line, by working the steps, something shifts inside. And, and it becomes more important for me to be part of the force for good for you than it is for me because I get everything I need all the time. All the time. It doesn't mean that it's not tough and it doesn't mean that, that life doesn't throw me, as it was said you know, last night by Frank, curveballs. You know, I get a lot of curveballs. But I have tools for that. You know, I have tools. I, you know, the simple kit of spiritual tools that it talks about in italics on page 25, that's one of my most favorite parts, you know, because I was a manipulator and I would have you do it for me. I, you know, I, yeah, I didn't want to ever pay the price to getting what I wanted. I wanted instant gratification. That's why I liked uh, uppers and tequila um, and, and Harley Davidson's. I didn't, you know, I, I like to go fast and furious and, and and just don't even look back and that's what I like to do and it didn't it wasn't always like that you know once I got my heart broken by the guy I almost married once I I, I sat and you know and I had a suicide attempt and and once I tried to go back to the Catholic Church and talk to the priest and I got him so mad we were talking politics that he came screaming at me from the confessional and and that was the last time I you know then of course I got to talk about the hypocrisies and I could justify it and I could go home and scream at my dad about his generation and how they weren't taking care of things or whatever it was and my father would just set his jaw and look at me with those eyes like what happened to you you know what happened to you and I used to see those eyes as judgment eyes and and what's wrong with you eyes and don't you know you have potential eyes and why do you have to act like that eyes and and now that I've been sober a while in Alcoholics Anonymous I have learned that those are eyes of compassion those are eyes of confusion we confuse people a lot um, you know, I used to call them the Al-Anon eyes, but it's not. You know, it's it's that we really confuse people. They just don't know what to do with us. Um, my dad certainly didn't, so he would just shut up. And my father and I had a lot of um, a lot of hard times. And he brought the priest down to help me, and the priest and I got drunk. And, you know, he sent me to a psychiatrist, and I wouldn't talk to the psychiatrist because I figured they were you know being paid and they could figure it out. You know, I had a bad attitude, a real bad attitude. And, um, you know, it just, my father and I had had one more big fight, and, you know, he said, you know what, if you're going to go to college, you're going to just going to have to pay for it yourself. He was tired of paying for the party. And um, I was at art school, and I was so loaded all the time, my big forte was painting canvases with my body. So that's, um, <laughs> I was closed. I was closed. But I was a mess, you know, and I would, like, lay on the canvas and kind of pass out there. And so I, I wasn't doing very well in art school. Um, even, even they thought I was a little bit too um, out there. But So I ended up in, uh, in New York City because that's where I thought I could make a new go of it. And I didn't know I was taking geographics. I didn't know that there was writing my Chapter 3. We all have our Chapter 3s, you know, whether you, you travel in your mind or you travel in, in, your, in your, your spirit or you travel physically. You know, we all have our Chapter 3s of things we've tried in my geographics. Ended, I ended up in New York and New York back to art school. I couldn't paint a picture. That was gone. And I ended up in Colorado and I was going to be an equestrian. I was going to be one of those horse people. And um, Equestrian, Bob. <laughs> I'm sober. I can say it now. But I ended up at the mountain man bar drinking at night, passing out in the shuffleboard. They'd have to roll me off so they could do the shuffleboard. I worked at an equestrian restaurant serving breakfast to them, hung over drunk for a, another alcoholic ex-marine boss. 
who I fought with all the time, and and I never got on a horse. I, I never got on a horse. But I met Bob Dylan, and I came to California, and um, or I think it was Bob Dylan. I mean, I sang like him, looked like him. I don't know. So I'm, I, you know, I'm thinking a new start, a fresh start. I turned 21, dancing in Westwood with the Krishnas. I ended up. At a at Huntington Beach, at a commune where there are more animals than people, and they asked me to leave because I was a little too depressing for them. And uh, I mean, they were so poor; they were doing things like drinking the bong wine, and it was just like, oh God, you guys! And, oh, you've done it then, yeah. <laughs> he remembers what it tastes like. Oh, it was pretty nasty, but if you hold your nose, it could go down. <laughs> but they asked me to leave, and I hated that. I hated being tapped on the shoulder and asked to go. I just hated that. I like to be. Like that marine boss in Colorado, I, he, as I'm, he's telling me that I'm fired, I'm going, I quit, you know. I mean, I want to be one step ahead of that. you got to go. I just couldn't handle that. And, but I ended up back in Colorado, and I go to back to where I was living, and somebody else is living there. Funny thing. I was only gone three months. I didn't understand why my wino f- boss and friend and all of that, she owned the place, and, and she kicked me out and had somebody living there. And he answered the door with my favorite coffee cup in his hand and my dashiki on. And I didn't ask for my things back. I said, I used to live there. He said, yeah, there's a couple boxes. And I went and got the photographs that were in the corner. And as the door slammed behind me, I said, go back and get your things. What is wrong with you? Because those are your things. Just go get your towels and your sheets and your your pots and pans. And and I couldn't do it. I couldn't turn around and claim what was mine anymore. I just couldn't do it. And it just didn't matter. And, you know, it's just, if it didn't fit in the backpack now, who cares? You know, I had my book in there, Be Here Now by Baba Ram Dass, and I didn't know how to be here now at all, I'll tell you that. Um, you know, when you took about 16 four-way hits of Orange Sunshine, it made sense, but then, you know, when you come back down from it, you forget where you left truth, what page it was on, how it was upside down, or, you know. I was always on this crazy search for truth, and I was like, you know, the truth was I was an alcoholic and didn't know it. You know, and I ended up back at home with mom and dad. I was 21 and it was over, and I knew I was dying. I didn't know alcoholism. I knew I was dying. I knew I smelled of death. I had a gallbladder that didn't work. I had pancreatitis. The doctor had me on Valium therapy. Nobody looked for any signs of alcoholism. I could go and drink in those taverns. My mother said I could stay there. Just please stay out of your father's way, she said. You just break his heart, she said, and don't take any drugs in this house. And they didn't know what to do with me. I went to church for a couple of weekends. I ended up um, talking to some more psychiatrists and a family doctor and, and nothing. You know. And I was sitting in that tavern one day, and this guy walked in and said, let me take care of you, and I was ready. I mean, I was just so tired. It didn't matter. I was sick, and I was tired, and I was 21, and it should have been over. Nobody knew alcoholism. There was a town drunk in our town, and that was it. And he used to come over and borrow a bottle occasionally if my dad had a business, so he had alcohol. And he would borrow one bottle, and when my dad would come home, I would tell him that there were two bottles. He borrowed two, you know. So I liked that town drunk. And he died a town drunk, but nobody knew alcoholism. There was none in my family. I thought maybe I had a cousin, that he would, but he straightened out in the service. They straightened him out. I, you know, I don't know what happened, but nobody in my family. You know, there's no alcoholism in my family that I know of. Um, so nobody really knew, and I didn't know, and I just knew that I was a loser, and it was over, and who cares anyway, and uh, so fine, where are we going? And this guy said that we were going to an organic farm in northern Wisconsin, where all I did was smoke organic pot, and um, there's only so much pot you can drink before you get really thirsty, and I got really thirsty when I saw the snow coming down, and I thought, I can't smoke this stuff. They wouldn't even let me smoke cigarettes, you know, and um, somebody else's checkbook, you guys are trusting me up here. Um <laughs> I don't even want to know. Um, but it's, you know, I got really thirsty and I get really drunk and they just look at me like, God, can't you just smoke this stuff? Why do you have to act like that? And, you know, the mouth would slip to the side, the boots would come on, you know, take their Pete Seeger records and flip them across the room and, you know, call them all oat heads. And, you know, and me and the cat and the dog are having a great time and the stones are on and it's cranked up and the snowplow is coming through and I got my cheap wine and I'm cheering the snowplow through and they're giving me that look like, what? is wrong with you? Why do you have to act like that? My head said alcohol is more fun than you. And I listened to my head. My head makes a lot of sense, especially when we're all down to one voice, you know. Alcohol is more fun than you. It took me a while, but eventually that they went off and did primal therapy and paid all this money, and I just went off and got drunk and screamed to the 50 head of organic sheep. That's what I did. 
And I, we had this organic pot. They left me with the pot, which was just fine. So that's what I did that summer. I was pruning a half acre of organic pot, and it was pretty, and it was nice. And that's where I lived with my wine, was in that pot patch that summer. I let all the hair grow everywhere. I was free. I didn't have to bathe. I walked around with nothing on if I didn't want. And my friend would come with the hard stuff. I hear that tractor coming up around the lane, and, and he was about, he was an older man. He didn't put it in his teeth a lot. And the reason he was on a tractor was because his license had been pulled for too many DWIs. So he just was on a tractor, and he was driving the tractor, you know? <laughs> you do what you do, right? Um, so Clarence would go get the hard stuff, and he'd come visit the, the hippie chick up the road, or whatever that town thought of me. I wasn't really sure what they thought of me. And, and uh, we'd play Indian love songs on this piano I had painted pink, and uh, yeah, I was free, you know? And I'd go out there and hold my arms, and everything would blow everywhere, and it was like, oh, <laughs> oh. Sorry. <laughs> I shave now, really, I do. <laughs> I'm being bad, I'm sorry. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> where was I? Um, <laughs> Oh, you're going to like this part. This is so true. That's what's so scary about it is uh, I went harvested this pot three days by horseback, you know, boiling water up, upside down by the roots. I picked it out. I put it in big hefty bags. I went to turn this big dope deal in a town 45 miles away. I forgot the pot, and I joined the carnival. <laughs> It's like I'm telling somebody else's story tonight. Oh, my God. So that was my life. I called my poor mother from Arkansas. I told her what had happened, and she just burst into tears. And, oh, I just thought, oh, God, Mom, you're my... Mom was always there for me. Mom always, you know, snuck some money away from Dad and sent it to me, or I would talk real soft on the phone. But now she's crying, and I just thought, oh, God, Mom, because Mom and I always had a great bond. We just always did, and... And that kind of broke my heart, but you know, I had these new carnival friends, they all had aliases, and, and I was drinking my tequila, and I had this bald, tired car with the sun painted on the hood, and, and I ran this shooting gallery, and I met the, the skunk man, and he was pretty, <laughs> and my dog didn't like the skunk, and the skunk didn't like the dog, it should have been a clue, but for two years we worked at it, for two years, because, you know, I know how to hang on and try hard, and I don't know how to let go sometimes, I don't know, I'm a Leo, I'll hang on your leg walking out the door if it's not time to go. You know, I'm just like that. And I've learned how not to make that part of me a defect today. I've learned how to make it part of my character. And loyalty is a wonderful thing. I remember, uh, you know, when I got divorced, I sat and had lunch with my friends, Vince and Pat. And I said, but doesn't he understand I married for life? And Vince looked at me and said, don't ever lose that quality. You know, and, and I just, I've been... I've been able to, to uh, not change basically who I am, but to enhance who I am, to let God into my life, to enhance who I am. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous does for you. Each one of us has a gift, whatever it is. And God just gets in there when we clean out enough stuff, and he's able to you know, move it around and, and work it out and let us have our gifts to give. Whatever your gift is, give it, because it really puts you right in God's grace, back in the light of God's grace. And I like being in that light. I like standing in the center of God's grace. I have to work hard to stay there, you know, because I'm still an edge person. I always like the edge. Let's go to the edge. Let's peek over the side. Let's see what's down there. You know, a lot of people slip off the edge, you know, and so I like to try to stay right in the smack in the center of that feeling of spirit and love and grace. And, you know, but I, I was really in the darkness, and I found the French Quarter of New Orleans after I got out of jail. I was busted for drugs. The carnival didn't care. They left town. Um, they didn't care that, you know, there was enough for a felony in that state. They didn't understand it was my own personal use. And um, so they... <laughs> They found everything, and the skunk went to jail, the dog went to jail, I went to jail, the boyfriend went to jail, we all went to jail. And after I was in there about a week, I ended up um, in this building, handcuffed a mess. Just, I didn't do lockup well at all. And they uh, threw me in this room, and there sat my dad. And my dad had gotten wind of this from my brother-in-law in New York, who was an attorney who was my only phone call. And my dad had gotten on a plane in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, flown into New Orleans, rented a car, drove across Lake Poncha trying to find this little town of Bogalusa to find daughter number two and what kind of jackpot she's in and see if he can help out, you know. And if I could take back one day, it would be that day. 
I don't remember much about it. It was eight years ago I asked my dad what I said. I didn't run home and say, I've joined AA. Tell me about that painful day, Dad. You know, I just didn't do it. I, eight years ago I asked my dad about that day, and he's, I said, I don't really remember much about it. He said, you told me you weren't guilty. It wasn't your fault. <laughs> Never my fault. I had a list a mile long, and you were on it, Dad. You were the top of the list. You know, you had the big shoulders. You should have saved me. You know, I, he, he, even if he would have done it, even physically tried to pull me away from alcoholism, couldn't have done it. I'm an alcoholic, and I will go to the ends of the earth to drink because the only thing that brings me peace is the only thing that gets me down to one voice. It is the only thing that makes me feel some nights omnipotent and bulletproof. Some nights it's the only thing that makes me not care because I care way too much. And um, so, you know, that was a day that was not close to my heart. And... When I got out of there, they sent me out to go make some money and pay a big fine or do time. I, they weren't sure, and so the skunk and I and the dog, and we all got out of jail, and he got out of jail. And so we ended up living above a biker bar in Lower St. Peter Street in the French Quarter, and that was a wonderful place for me to land. It was just terrific. Uh, I uh, danced on Bourbon Street for Chris Owen. She's still doing it. I can't believe it. And I wore a platinum blonde wig and zippers everywhere. And fishnet stockings and my drag queen friends would make me up and I just thought I was something um, and some nights the skunk would come down Bourbon Street with me you know and we would go drinking together and that skunk liked rum and coke and so people buy the skunk drink and then the skunk would pass out on its back so it like maraschino cherries and sometimes it would have the cherry hanging half out of it and then I'd be passed out next to the skunk you know and it was just the way it was it was just insanity but it was the way it was and I met other quarter people just like me I ended up tending bar and I ended up tending bar in some nice places, getting fired from the nice places because I drank on the job. I drank on the job. Are you kidding? I'm there. Buy you a drink, buy me a drink. So the places I started to work in, they want you to drink on the job. They want you to ring that till up. And, you know, I did a lot of helping myself to whatever I wanted. Um, and I remember working one Mardi Gras, and I drank gold, and the guy that always followed me on my shift was named Freak, and he drank Bacardi. Once I sent him a postcard, I just put Frank Freak, French Quarter, USA, and it got to him. I mean, everybody knew Freak, and um, he, he's still there. He's got about two teeth left, but I saw him about eight, ten years ago. He's still okay, I guess. Um, but nobody touched his Bacardi, and nobody touched my tequila, because we just always had it packed. That was ours. And I'd been through a quarter and a half. My shift wasn't even halfway over yet, and I was stone-cold sober working. And I just, for a moment there, I thought that was a lot of booze. Just for a second, I had a fleeting thought that was a lot of booze I was drinking. And I could drink a lot. And sometimes I would drink in Florida and wake up and, you know, I, I woke up once. It was near Dustin, and I didn't know how I got there, who I was with, and why we were going the wrong way on the freeway. Um, I, my blackouts were sometimes three or four days. Sometimes I would come to two days later sitting in the same bar stool I had passed out in. And, you know, I had a tab because Billy came to my bar, and he had a tab at my bar. So when I went there, he took care of me. And then even at the end of my drinking, the Bastille didn't want me back anymore either. And the Bastille isn't one of your local yokel places. It's pretty dark and dingy, and nobody wants to know that there's any sunlight out there. Everything's painted black. And, and I don't know, something about my hair got caught in the fan when I was dancing on the bar or something, and I broke the fan, and, you know, I had a few lumps on my head. And, you know, when I came to and I had blood on me, I was just always glad it wasn't mine. And, you know, that's just the way it was. Um, my mom and dad visited me there for the last time, and you can imagine, I'm a mom today, I can't imagine. Um, they, I guess they went to Texas, and they, I didn't know they were coming. Believe me, I didn't know they were coming. And they came across to try to see if they could find me, and they did find me. And I was living above the biker bar with this guy, and I had a new black eye, because now that's my relationship. My relationship is knife fights, black eyes, insanity, craziness. That's my relationship. Um, I don't know how to have love. Um, I know how to go to the edge. I know how to have intense feelings. And that was absolutely normal for me to have this kind of insanity. I didn't grow up in it. I never had had it. My first boyfriend that I almost married twisted my arm when I was drunk and swinging at him. And I thought, no man's ever going to touch me like that. And that's when I was 19 years old. By the time now I'm 24 years old, we're having black eye fights on a regular basis. Craziness. And he had a heroin habit, and I didn't understand anybody face down going, let's party. And he'd pass out and I'd kick him around a little and then the skunk would attack me and it was just craziness you know? and we got a snake and um, my parents came and you can just imagine what they saw you know the skunk the snake uh, the guy calling me four letter words in front of my mother um, wasn't pretty and my dad just set his jaw and looked at me from the corner of his eye with that disappointment you know, that's what he did and my mom um, cried and she cried that day and and um, I'll drink with you anytime. <laughs> Keep, keeping my glass full here. Um, 
I, uh, ni 1975 was a bad year. I, uh, my friend Michael was shot and killed. I was in a blackout. I came two, two feet inside the door. Um, how do you make amends for something like that? You know, I don't remember. I was the last person to speak to him alive, and yeah, Michael's dead today. And I don't know if it was alcoholic suicide. He had a gun. He lowered the gun. And I found out years later, I got to meet the man who was in the apartment downstairs who heard everything happen between Michael and the policeman. So I got to know, finally, what happened that day. It took years and years and years for me to find out. But um, I was in a blackout two feet inside the door, and Norm Alpe used to talk a lot when I was new, and I know there's some old-timers here, and you probably got to hear Norm talk. Norm talked about seconds and inches. And it's just been seconds and inches that, that I am lucky enough to be with you, that you were lucky enough to be here because this, those, I mean, even like William Holden got it with a corner of a, of a table on his temple. I mean, all the times that I had driven coast to coast in blackouts, you know, coming to and, and, and going back under and, and, and driving and, and being with people I didn't know and hitchhiking. I mean, I had an incredible experience where I almost got shot with a shotgun outside of Pensacola, Florida once. But, um, you know, just those kind of insane situations we get ourselves in, and it's only by seconds and inches that we get here, that somehow we, we had a, you know, there's a window in time where God just gave us a chance, you know. And, and I think that um, the blessing for me is that I stuck, that I ended up here. In 1975, I ended up um, in New York and California, and I was drinking with these two guys. One is since dead. They were trying to help me control and enjoy my drinking because I was a little depressing now when I drank. Um, I bloated up. I was pretty heavy when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was over 170 pounds. I was toxic. I had had my gallbladder removed. I did have pancreatitis. I was uh, not looking in the mirror anymore. I remember when the last shower, I remember taking hurt. Um, I didn't. had become unemployable in the French Quarter in New Orleans. They didn't want me back in that old stinky, smelly bar I was working in. And I got hired as a cocktail waitress for 10 minutes down on La Cienega Boulevard, and they asked me to go home. And they paid me, and they said, please don't come back, because I couldn't remember where the drinks went. I would stand in the middle of the dance floor with this rack of drinks, not knowing where they were supposed to go. And I was drinking at Barney's Beanery and the Rain Check Room and Rudy's and after-hours places and wherever. And it didn't matter if I slept in a hallway or, or your floor or your car. And um, But I wrote a letter. <laughs> I wrote a letter back to my friend Robin in the French Quarter. April of that year. I got sober in August, and I told her how wonderful life was. She gave it back to me a few years ago. It was so. It was all a lie. It was all a lie, except for the poem I had written about being in a bar. Um, it was all a lie. I was dying of alcoholism, and I'm writing her this letter home about how wonderful things are in California. First of all, I hated it because they had hours. They closed the bars. I couldn't stand that, and I couldn't. Um, I just didn't know what to do. You know, I got. Uh, back to New Orleans, um, and I had DTs in Texas traveling through. I didn't know that I didn't. I needed enough alcohol in my system. I didn't know that. I guess we were in a dry area or something. I didn't have enough fresh alcohol. Um, I had splotches on my face that were from I don't know liver damage. I'm not sure, but I remember them being there. I couldn't look in the mirror anymore. I didn't look in the mirror anymore. Um, you know that girl that could have been anything she wanted to be growing up was gone. I was 25 years old and it was over. Um, ended up going to Hawaii with a guy I met. I couldn't stand being in the French Quarter anymore. It seemed like my alcoholic friends didn't want to drink with me anymore. I was the, the one who was with the guy who died, and I felt very guilty about that. And my friend Michael, who had been shot, I felt very guilty. Everybody knew him. And um, I ended up in Barney's Beanery, and I saw the big book for the first time. I was at this bar, and her name was Chris Running, and they... Uh, they called a taxi. She was going to A&A, and so we gave her a toast, you know, because she couldn't drive. She was way too drunk that night, and the bartender called a taxi so she could go to A&A. She had the big book under her arm. It was the black and white cover at the time. It was the second edition, and uh, I remember her going out the door because her eyes were half closed, feeling her way out the door with this big book to get to a taxi to go to A&A, and we all just toasted her as she went out the door, and that was the first time I ever heard Alcoholics Anonymous. I had never heard of it before. Um, I ended up going to Palm Springs on a Harley with some guys because they asked me to go, and they just needed a little extra weight. They didn't really want to party with me. So that's what I had become was a little extra weight. Um, thank God for blackouts because I don't remember much about that night. When I came to, I was in an empty apartment, and I was being physically abused. 
and sexually abused and my uh, jaw had been broken in three places. I had a concussion and my nose had been broken and these guys were pretty, I was twice their size really. They weren't very big guys and they had drug me around so much on the cement and they had taken me outside of town and rolled me off the side of the road that when they found me they didn't know I was a Caucasian. I was so bruised and bloodied that they didn't know I was a Caucasian. And um, at some point in that evening, I remember surrendering finally. <laughs> you know, I remember finally letting go. My spirit just let go. My ego died, and I just stopped screaming. And that was how I gave up. I just thought, who the hell cares anyway? And I just gave up. And we all have those moments where we just give up. And that's when I think we get the moment to have God just kind of tap us on the shoulder and go, there's a better way. Um, yeah, nobody came running into the hospital to say, let's go join AA. I was in intensive care for a week, and then I was in the hospital for a week. I was a victim of violent crime, so I had the policemen there. I had, you know, the people of the city there. I, it was in the newspaper. This wasn't going to happen in their town. They've caught these guys. It was going to go to court. And I... Uh, Nobody sent me an airline ticket, and nobody sent me money. And that was seconds and inches right there, right there. If somebody would have bailed me out, you'd have another speaker. If my mom would have sent $20, you'd have another speaker, and I know that. I absolutely know that. Um, uh, this guy that felt sorry for me said I could come stay with him. He lived above a liquor store in West Los Angeles. And I had met him at that bar, Barney's, and he knew that girl, Chris, who had gone to ANA. And um, the morning that he told me I had to leave, I was depressing him. Um, pat me on the shoulder. I called my mother, and my mother said, Sharon, I can't help you anymore. Why don't you go to the Salvation Army? And if my mother would have said, you know, just come home, we'll try. You know, or I'll just, you know, all I can do is just send you a $50 bill. Please don't call home anymore. You'd have another speaker. Because sitting under me was that girl's number. Chris Running was her name. And I called her because her number was there. And I had been drinking red wine through the broken jaw that was wired shut where the tooth had been. And that's what I was doing. Because well, I'm an alcoholic. All I know to do is to drink. And I was drinking red wine. And, and I called this uh, girl, Chris, and she said she could help me, but, um, but not today. And I got to call Suzanne. And so I called Suzanne because Chris was drunk that day. She had seven chances in and out of the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous and she did not get back for the eighth try. She died in St. John's Hospital. She was 31 years old. She died of alcoholism. I was about two years sober. But she was there for me that day. She recognized the disease alcoholism. And I called Suzanne and Suzanne said, put your drink down and put your joint down. I thought, how does she know I have both? <laughs> and I sat on the steps of that liquor store. They're now tearing it down. It's like everybody in my home group is coming up. Oh, my God, they're tearing down the duck pond. You know, it's like that's part of where I started was sitting on those steps with my broken Hirachi shoes, my broken jeans, my broken jaw, my broken nose, my broken spirit. Sitting there on those steps and this Volkswagen pulled up bright yellow. I remember her looking at it. And these bright girls got out with bright smiles, and they came at me, and my head said no. My head said, you're not going anywhere with them. But I was so surrendered. And I, if you are desperate enough, I, I think that, I mean, I could have gone anywhere that day. And the joy of it was, was that I was given the chance to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know if I have seven chances, eight chances. I don't want to test it. I'm here today. If you're here today, hold on to it. Even if you're having a bad day, it's like, you know, I've had a lot of come on midnight days, you know, where you just hang in there till midnight, you put your head in the pillow, and in the morning when the sun comes up on the problems, it feels a little different. You know, that's a spiritual day for me. When I can hang in there through those tough days like that, that's like, I came in here like an empty glass, and those kind of days I get a whole eyedropper full of self-worth in that empty glass. You know, and, and showing up when I don't want to show up and bring those cookies to those silly people at that silly meeting or answering the phone at midnight or, you know, I get these little drops in this glass, this empty vessel of who I was. And at seven years of sobriety, the glass got full. The vessel got full. At seven years of sobriety, I finally had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. And I felt like God's kid from the tip of my head to the tip of my toes. It took that long for me to feel full here. It took a lot of step work and a lot of work with working with sponsors and other people and showing up and having a lot of those, and I'm not going to run no matter what days, you know, taking my pack off and sitting here with it. Mentally, my backpack is packed and ready to go. I've got my credit card and my, you know, passport sitting in it, but I'm not going to do anything today, you know. And, and just by having that type of connection to Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't had to leave. I've wanted a drink many times, but I haven't had to have one. Um, and it all started on that day. I had no idea these girls were taking me to Alcoholics Anonymous. We pulled up to a church, and I thought, oh, 
oh God, now I'm going to have to explain myself. I'm going to have to mea copa. They'll probably want me to take a potential test. Um, they're going to ask me what I've done with my life, write the essay on why I'm not who I am, you know, pay some money. You know, I wouldn't even go get my mantra because you had to pay for it. I thought things were supposed to be free, you know, and... Um, so I ended up at this church, and the man put his hand out, and I thought he was going to whisk me in the kitchen behind him because he was going to say, you can't come in here looking like this. I thought that's what he was going to say to me, and he said, welcome. He disarmed me. He said, welcome. And he didn't put me in the kitchen, and he put me in the front row. I don't know how they knew I was new. You know, it was just, <laughs> you could smell the detoxing alcoholic. That's it. Um, I am still in that same home group today. I still get reminded of how I was when I walked in the doors of AA, and it's, it's a joyful thing to be in a room of people who were there when you first came to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a joyful thing. Um, they always threaten to wire me back up sometimes, but uh, the first three months I was here, I couldn't talk. I had to learn to listen. It was just totally a blessing that I had this wired shut mouth, and you couldn't hear what I was mumbling behind there, and you didn't listen to my head because, you know, thank God we don't walk in here with TV screens so we can all see what we're thinking, you know, because nobody talked to each other. Um, and thank God I ran into a bunch of people that said, don't drink and don't use and we'll pick you up tomorrow. Don't drink and don't use and we'll pick you up tomorrow. Thank God they didn't say, oh, how, we'll just see you next week. I hope you, you know, have a nice week there, you know. Thank God they, they, they were on me. And I had about eight days of the old-timers in the group, and then this lady named Pat came in behind me, and, and they just all seemed to gravitate towards her. And it was like, well, I'm the one that's hurt, and she looks fine over here, you know. And, you know, and she'd cry all the time, and they'd spend all this time with her, and they'd send all their newcomers over to work with me. So I've got people in their first year working with me, taking me, giving me rides. I'm sleeping on their floor now, and... And I'm passed around on these newcomers' floors, and they're all in the first stages of third and fourth steps and all this, you know, intensity going on. And it was just like, you know, my mother finally sent me a blender so I could eat. I mean, that was my big life, you know. And I went to day meetings and night meetings, and, and my mouth was wired shut, and I could read three pages of that big book, and that was it. She said, read three pages every night, and that's all I tried to do. I couldn't even do that much of the time. And... And, you know, and this lady, Pat, just seemed to get all this attention. And, and, you know, and I was thinking at one point, I was thinking, I'm going to go out and drink and show all them because they're just, they act like they don't care, you know. And, and then I thought, well, I have less time than Pat, so I better hang in there. You know, I didn't want to have less time than this woman. I have eight days more than, you know. And when we were doing our steps, you know, I had done steps one, step two, step three. The first third step I took with my sponsor was the, the it was daylight. We were on our knees and our, our door was open. The kids were home. You know, and I don't get it at all why we're praying out of the book and we're on our knees and she's all excited. She's like so excited. She jumps up and hugs me and she puts her face right in my chest and she won't, she just won't leave me alone. She's like hugging, hugging, hugging. You know, and I'm like got my arms at my side going, stop hugging me, please stop hugging me. You know, and I'm just like, why won't she stop? She's so excited. You know, I'm a sponsor today. I get excited, more excited than the baby about the third step. I get that now, but you know, I started to feel all warm and gushy all over and, I, and then I knew I was gay. That was probably what was going with me. I was probably Okay. That was my very first third step. I didn't know what a feeling was. I had no idea, you know. And so Janet and I talked about not, you know, having anything, you know, big in our first year of sobriety, nothing big and altering. So we just decided not to be gay for a while. And, you know, but I, I hadn't done my fourth step, and it seemed like Pat had done her fourth step. You know, it seemed like she had done it really early, and I didn't know why she had done it really early. Well, her husband was dying of cancer, so they were pushing her through the steps so she could make amends and living amends and be there for her dying of cancer husband but I'm not th I'm thinking she's getting all the attention you know it's all about me and and so you know it seemed like every time they'd read chapter five Pat would turn around and look at me and her lips would get thin and blue you know and I know she was going I've done my fourth step I know you haven't done yours I've done my fifth step I know you haven't done yours you know she gets them just give me that arrogant little snotty look and oh I get so mad at her you know and I remember when I finally did my fourth and fifth step. I finally finished my fourth step at the airport the night I was going to go to Vegas. I had a new credit card. I hadn't had my slip yet. I had 11 months of sobriety. Everybody's talking about how much they learned on their slip. And, boy, I better go have my slip or I'm going to be here forever. So I have 11 months. I'm at the airport. I call her. I'm going to Vegas to have my slip. Don't worry. I'll be back. <laughs> But I had been trained to call that sponsor every day, so I didn't want her to worry. So I called her. <laughs> and she said, fine, go off to Vegas, have a great time on your slip. Be like my friend Stella. She wouldn't finish her inventory either. You know, that's a low blow, she added. She went off, had her slip, and burned up in a bed. Go have fun. <laughs> burned up in a bed. That's all I could think about. 
So I sat at the airport and I wrote, I was so mad. Janet had motivated me with my anger. She pushed me through fear with anger because Janet was an angry woman that had learned how to live in the world. She worked hard at being a citizen among citizens in the world. She really did. And Janet was on to me and I'm so glad she was the perfect sponsor for me. Absolutely the perfect sponsor. But the night I finally did my fifth step. The next night, sitting in the meeting, because we were up all night, because, you know, we're sitting on the beach with our flashlights, reading it in Venice Beach. It's amazing we're still alive, but, you know, <laughs> I guess we had that little cocoon going. I don't know. Actually, we had the Venice PD checking up on us every half hour. Are you girls still okay? Yeah, we're okay. Leave us alone. You know, like, you can't read it, you know. It's just... <laughs> You know, I dropped her off that morning. The sun was coming up. I looked up in the sky, and I had a thought, this this, this beautiful little thought crossed my head that wasn't me because it was real corny. It said, angels would live there. And I thought, who said that? You know, it was just like just a moment of something that was sweet and innocent and not me, just crossed the cross. I had cleaned enough out. I got a, just a little bit of joy in there. And, and that night I sat deeper in my seat, and when Pat turned on and looked at me, I just gave her a big smile, you know, because I had done my fifth step. And you know what? Um, on August 20th of this year, Pat called me and wished me a happy birthday, and on August 28th, I called Pat and wished her a happy 25th birthday this year, too, so it doesn't matter. You know, in the beginning, motives don't have to count at all, and sometimes they don't even today, but a lot of times my motives do count because my motives make a difference. Because today, um, you know, alcoholism centers in the mind, and the mind is of the spirit, and the mind is of the will, and the mind is of, you know, the thoughts. So my mind isn't just my crazy head that goes and goes and goes sometimes. Um, You know, I think, you know, when I was new, I couldn't have meditated. It was just... It was too insane, you know. My uh, my early meditations were reading and closing the book and trying to remember what I read, you know, as I drove down the street, you know, and cursed at everybody to get out of my way. Oh, that's right. I can't do that, you know. I mean, I just had to be brought back all day long. Um, they wouldn't let me tend bar, and I had to go out and be a waitress, and I had a bad attitude. And, and you don't make money if you have a bad attitude. Or, you know, I thought I had to be honest in all my affairs, which meant tell people how I am when they ask. They don't care. They don't want to know. You know, you scare them away. They don't want to sit in your station anymore. They not that one. We'll sit over here. Um, so I, I learned how from the Al-Anons how to do this, how to keep my mouth shut, and I made a lot more money, you know, a lot more money. So I was teachable, thank God, because um, I almost got drunk over the color of a car, and I want to bring that up because, you know, I think about it now, and I think I ended up almost at a bar because they painted my car the wrong color. You know, and it was it was like a car I paid $500 for. You had to put a chair in the back because I was low riding. You know, the seat was broken. So we had to lift it up, and I got to paint a Basin Street blue, and I went and picked it up, and I should have known better than pick a New Orleans color, but I did. And it was bright, bright turquoise. And it was back in the days, and, you know, they didn't have bright cars back then, and it was a Chevelle. And uh, it was pretty bright. And I called my sponsor, and I'm crying because, you know, they said that it was faded, and they didn't care, you know, because they said I picked that color, and they said, well, that's the color but that's faded and they didn't care and I'm going to go drink and nobody cares and you know thank God I had this sponsor I called because she had me laughing Janet had me laughing in about 10 seconds we were going to tone it down and buff it down and you know and she was naming it all these Spanish colors because she was Spanish and we were going to name my car all these dirty words and you know she had me laughing and I think of that between me and me is me between me and my sponsor's air and there's a chance for, you know, some sanity to develop. If I'm so intense about whatever it is I'm intense about, you know, I can get intense about anything. Oh, my God, I turned on the TV yesterday afternoon and this lemur fell out of a tree, this baby lemur on PBS, and it died. And oh, I'm like sobbing. It's this baby lemur. And how the mother comes and how it's trying and how the male comes and how she doesn't want to leave it. And I'm like, oh, I don't think I'll ever watch PBS again. It was so intense, you know. It's I'm not well all the time, so um, you know I, I need I need a lot of keepers, um, but um, so I can't go in there alone. You know, my sponsor says it's like a bad radio station; just tune it down. You know, and the way I do that is I send them all to the back of the bus, and me and God sit in the front of the bus. I don't feed them; I don't give them any tuna fish sandwiches. They can just starve to death in the back of the bus. If I start listening to them, then they change clothes in the middle of the night, and they fool me as who they think they are, who's on my side, who's not on my side. I just can't go there. <laughs> just can't go there, you know? So I don't feed them after midnight, that's for sure. And 
I have learned how to make my feet my friend. Um, you know, I will show you afterwards. I have pedicured feet. I have nice feet. I take good care of my feet. If you're new, wake up a second, just a second. They told me to leave my mind in my car. I would go to my waitress job. I would open the trunk of my car. I would put my mind in. I would close my mind in the trunk of the car. I would go punch in work. I would be a nice little employee, give them the, the Al-Anon smile all day long, make my tips, come back. Then I could open up the trunk and put my mind back in my head. And then we could all drive to the meeting together, you know, and talk about the day. But, you know, that's, make your feet your friend. Your feet will get you to the meetings. Your feet will get you to the phone. Your feet will get you to your sponsor's house. Your feet will get you to the coffee shop where you know they are. Your feet will get you past that liquor store. They'll just keep on walking. Love those feet. Those feet. I had lacked my way into good living. I had no idea how to be a good sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, how to have commitments, keep commitments. I was shown. I was shown by the best. And I looked. I watched for them to trip. You know, I watched for them to trip and fall, and I was shown by the very, very best to show up. My sponsor said, if you don't, you better buy a thermometer, and if you don't have a temperature, you show up. And if you still feel sick, then you can go home. I had a friend named June Ann who, God bless her, she never stayed sober, and she's dead now. I got to go say goodbye to her in Atlanta, and that year I got the Christmas card back, stamped deceased. And I'm so glad I got to go tell her thank you and find her again, because she drugged me around. She drugged me around to all the she-she Beverly Hills meetings with my wired jaw and my... You know, T-shirts and my broken shoes, and you know, I look like some sort of, you know, Quasimodo. But you know, she drug me around and made these people shake my hands at Rodeo and Beverly Hills and, and all those nice places. And and she loved it. She just loved dragging me around. And and she uh, had the cookie commitment. I had the cup washing commitment at that Wednesday night meeting. And and we have to get there early. And she'd go off and buy cookies. And I have to stand there and listen to people talk because I couldn't talk back because my jaw was broken. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and she'd go off and come back. Well, this one night she didn't come back, and it was like, where's your you know, the meeting's going to start. If you are cookie or coffee and you're not there, they will miss you. They will miss you, definitely. So the cookies weren't there, and everybody wants their cookies. And what happened was uh, the black and white pulls up, and then LAPD gets out, and he walks up to the to the secretary who's standing at the door, and now we're all gathering around, and we want to know what's going on. And, and he said, well, you know, Junan sent me here. Well, where is she? Well, she's in the car. You know, here's the cookies. She convinced me to bring the cookies. Yeah. <laughs> She bought the cookies. She went back. She shoplifted some candy bars. We caught her. We got to take her in. But here's the cookies. I'll see you later. You know? <laughs> That's commitment, you know? <laughs> so I learned a lot from the best. I really did. Um, I got to go back to New Orleans in 1980, uh, or 1980 for the International Convention. I got to walk those streets with my group on masse, and I felt safe and protected and had a ball and stood in front of some of my old friends who didn't recognize me and I got to make amends in that town and as a result of that, um, you know, just being an example of how you had cleaned me up, <laughs> you know, just that example, that physical example of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was amazing. You know, I get to sponsor one of the women who has 16 years, another one of my best friends is sober. And Denny went back to law school in sobriety and sent me my pardon from the state of Louisiana. You know, and un, that was just unexpected and unearned. She just did it for me. And I, um, yeah, that was about 10 years ago now that she did that for me. And I stood up a lot straighter and taller that day, you know. And, and I've had a lot of circles closed in my life, so I've been able to heal and move on. And something else has happened in my life, and I didn't realize that was going to happen. A sense of innocence has come back into it. And um, if you're a woman alcoholic, you know what it feels like. Because I gave up my dignity, and I gave up my art talent, and I gave up... My, my relationship with my family, my place in that family. I gave up my place in my community. I gave up being one of God's kids, a nice little Catholic girl. I gave it all up, you know. I sponsor this nun. That's a long story, but I do. Um, <laughs> I sponsor this nun. I sponsor an ex-nun. And um, I sponsor a couple of un-nuns, too. But I <laughs> sponsor a lot of women, and they're a joy. And this, this nun that came in my life well, came in at a perfect time in my life. I got married at two years of sobriety. He had six more months than me. And... And when I was eight years sober, I was the secretary of our big group on Wednesday night. I was so pregnant, I couldn't even stand at the podium. I had to talk like this. And my son waited for my term to be over, and he was born. And that was uh, June 23rd, 1984. And I never thought I could be a mom, wanted to be a mom, any of that stuff. And um, and what happened was, uh, at 10 years of sobriety, my... Um, my husband decided he wanted somebody else in the room, and she was new, and, you know, it was messy. And nobody got custody of the meetings, and it was just messy. And I, my son was a year and a half old, and my second sponsor, Jenny, who I adore and love, Jenny, um, Jenny ended up um, 
uh, my sponsor for five years. She ended up smoking pot in Paris and uh, giving up her sobriety. She's got almost five years again today, and the light has gone back on. And it's awful hard to watch somebody with 21 years go out and try to come back. Do we have an emergency? Okay. We have every night. We have an emergency. Um, but um, <laughs> um, thank God we're here for them, though. Um, so, so this uh, husband decided he wanted somebody else, and it was uh, really hard to be there. And I ended up at Clancy's door, and and because uh, my sponsor had was a newcomer, and and I knocked on his door with my baby in a stroller, and I came in and sat down, and I said something like, "I don't know if you like me, I don't know if I like you, but I need help." And um, and so he said we'd try, and he's been my sponsor now for 15 years. And I was so glad he was there that year because I was wacko. I I didn't stop showing up at the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I did things like spike up my hair and dye it all these different colors and uh, you know which meant stay away from me and I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't eating but I wasn't going to give up my chair in Alcoholics Anonymous and um, you know one night I was on my way over to see him with two hot cups of black coffee and my sponsor happened to be at that Saturday night meeting and he's always gone but he happened to be there that night and he saw me and took the coffee out of my hands he saw where I was going with it he said Sharon you'll walk through this with dignity and grace and if he would have stopped right there I would have said screw dignity and screw grace but he was louder than my head he said, so you can be an example to others. I didn't want to hear that. So I had to start taking my inventory and start working with others and quit doing all the self-destructive things that I was doing because I was in such pain about all this and just leave them alone. Just leave them alone. And uh, we were at their son's first birthday party because I was directed to go. I showed up. I wasn't happy about it, but my son got to be at his half-brother's first birthday. And we still have pictures today of the two of them at that first birthday party. And nobody talked bad about each other in front of the kids, even though I'd pick him up and he'd say, oh, Jill did this and Jill did that. And I just, oh, God, you know, you're so cute, but I just want to kick you out of the car right now. But I didn't, you know, I just, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's nice, you know. And and uh, so I never said anything bad about her. And we started to do things together with the kids. And, you know, she gave me a birthday cake um, a week ago Monday night. And she's my best friend today. And, uh, you know, who'd have thunk it? Um, but, you know, they've been divorced about eight years now. So it's been <laughs> Um, he's happy he married an Alan on that's what he wanted all along I guess you know but but Jill told me when he left her for this other one um, watch how they come how they go um, you know that she knew she could do it because I had walked through it with dignity and grace and I was her example and who would have ever thought that it's none of my business why I'm thrown into the swamp of alligators my job is to keep swimming to that next island you know life is a series of hallways you know I am so I was just rocketed into a fourth dimension after that healing I was sitting in that Catholic church waiting for that nun who would have me go to lunch or dinner with her and say I meet you at mass when mass is over and I was sitting in there one day and something shifted inside of me and I felt whole again. It was one year, one month, and 18 days later, but who's counting? You know, being in that hallway. And I get to go in and out. Of, I can go in any church in the world today because my God comes with me because my God is in my heart. My heart is so full of God that it can go anywhere. Um, my first God was beacons. We're moving then, but it's changed now. But I still uh, get calls from people when they see a beacons van. How are you? It's a beacons van. You know, my son will point them out in the freeway. I'll be lost out of gas. I'll see one. I know I'm going to be okay. It just it still works for me. Yeah. But my life um, really has been rocketed into a fourth dimension after I walked through that. It's a series of hallways. You know, it's the view I left behind. I'm stuck in a hallway. What's it called? Quit whining. It's called growth. It's called life. You know, learn how to enjoy the hallway. Take the blinders off. Look at who's sitting. Why are you in the hallway? Talk to somebody else for a while. Crack open a window, play some music, hang some art. You know, go to a lot of meetings. Get some throw pillows. You'll be okay, you know, because Fred made it through the door, you know, and, oh, God, maybe it'll be my turn tomorrow, you know, and it always is a beautiful more view. Every time I've stuck into the hall, through the hallway to the next door that opens, the view amazes me. You know, it just amazes me. The levels that we get to go through in sobriety, it's... um go through and go to it's just amazing to me there's no end to it I sometimes feel like I'm just beginning like I said I haven't painted a picture yet I've done a few little creative things I'm sponsoring a bunch of creative people who are pushing me in that direction I am doing writing again which is fun I've been at a law firm 13 years to raise this great kid he's 16 I mean I just have no idea. Um, you know, it's, that this kid is definitely God's kid because he looked at me. Uh, it was about six months ago. And I said, God, Mom, you wasted a lot of time drinking, didn't you? You know, it's like, <laughs> no. He's focused. He's, you know, he's a, he's a gentleman. Um, he wants to do well in school, and uh, he's got a girlfriend now. And, you know, and life is good. Um, 
I, I, I can't believe that he's just a, a young man. He's a young man, and and he got to go with me to Washington D.C. when I got to go to that Capital City breakfast and talk and represent Alcoholics Anonymous to the people in the Capitol. And it was white linen, and it was. <laughs> My son was sitting there, and I felt so proud to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous that day and to go back and to be able to give back and to pay back. Um, I've been um, blessed thousands of times over by being with you every day for the last 25 years in one week and what is it? about seven days. Um, I, yeah, it is. One, yeah, it's two weeks, actually. 25 years in two weeks. Um, Got to keep track because Pat's got those eight days left, so I got to make sure I'm right on there, you know. <laughs> but I got, I've got pets today, and, and my walk every morning is with my little dog. My little dog puts her face on my bed, and, and she looks at me, and she's full of life, and she's full of love, and it's just, um, you know, it's my prayer is just, God, please help me to be half the person that my God, my dog thinks that I am, because it's, <laughs> it's real simple. It's real simple for me. I take a walk, and I get in touch with my higher power, and I try to go out in the world and be part of the force for good and not judge who gets it and who doesn't get it it's just you know do the next thing and try to be a good example whether you're looking or not my my uh i want to let you know that um i have a man in my life of 13 years casey's 18 years sober and he means the world to me our relationship is based on gratitude and there's a lot of passion and gratitude and uh, my dad and i um got to make um amends um i got to go back and make those amends at one year sobriety and i got to uh with that second sponsor jenny she had me call him up and Ask him if I could pay back the money I owed him for the bail bonds and some of the cards and the checks and the credit cards. And, and I called him up, and he had been to my wedding, and he had walked me down the aisle, and he, you know, saw of you and bought the big book, and he read it, you know, because my dad's a reader. And when I called him that cold January night in Iowa and asked him if I could pay him back the money he owed me, if he could get together a figure, he already had it ready. <laughs> He had done his homework, and he said, if Sharon stays sober, uh, she'll get to page 78 here, which I have a calculator tape in, circled in red at the bottom. You know, so if I'm not home, tell her this is the figure. So I had a wonderful sponsor that, that you know, when I called her and told her, and that I was resentful. It was a little high. She said she didn't care, and she said, I want you to put a note with that. Don't send the cash alone in the envelope. Tell him about your life in a note. And she made sure I sent that check and that note. And after four years, my father called me between Christmas and New Year's and said, Merry Christmas, Sharon. I don't want your check or your money anymore. Your debt is free and clear. And that would have been enough for me, but I had a sponsor who wanted more for me than I wanted for myself because he said, don't stop sending me your notes. And my dad and I got to walk into a brand-new, loving, beautiful, guilt-free relationship. He um, got killed on his farm on um, April 19th uh, last year, and it was a it was quick, and it was a tractor accident. And as my sponsor said, that was for him, that it was that quick, because my dad was uh, 81, and I got the call. And you know what? I knew to be there for my mom, and I knew to be there for my family, and I walked in, and there were notes and flowers from people in Alcoholics Anonymous already there. And um, I got to walk through that with dignity and grace. And... And I got to write my dad another note and put my 23-year chip in with them and um, play him a tune on the accordion. And <laughs> my dad was always so proud of me when I played the accordion. And I only played it because I wanted his approval. You know, we go to Solon, Iowa to the Centennial, and we'd be on these hay bales and the Boddicker Accordion Band, and I have this red dress cotton piquet all down around this around this bale of hay so we cover the bale of hay which is in your butt you know and you've got and we're sitting there with these big titano beautiful black and white mother of pearl accordions and we're playing and and i see my dad he just light up when he'd see this because he's Czech, you know and and then i'd see the boys from last night and i just like oh god you know <laughs> So when I, my dad's uh, awake, I wanted to play him a tune, and I didn't have my button accordion or my uh, piano accordion. It was my father's Heliganka button accordion from Czechoslovakia that he played by ear beautifully, beautifully. So I worked on that all day long, playing this, this amazing grace and this button, and it's all different. And, oh, my God, I worked so hard on this because I wanted to play my dad a tune. And we were at the wake, and everybody kept walking by, and it was like lines of people and lines of people, and it's a smaller town, and everybody loved my dad. And they would keep saying, oh, God, are you Nancy? And it's like, no, I'm not that Mensa. God, don't bring her up. You know, she's over there, the perfect one, you know, the hero child. And now by about the time that the 12th person said that to me, I'm like on the phone with my sponsor in the rectory, you know. It's like, because now it's become about me. It's my father's wake, but it's become about me, you know. And I'm calling Clancy, and he doesn't get on. 
piece of submission still because of the time change. Oh, I hang up the phone. I call back and I, I tell Omar. I said, Omar, this is long distance. Okay, I'll get him. And I said, you got 60 seconds. Well, on 48, Clancy picked up. And I told him what was happening and that my father's wake and, you know, and that i just not feeling comfortable. And, you know, he said, well, you're not supposed to. I mean, you know, my perspective is a little off, you know. And I called him. I worked really hard on this accordion thing all day long. And, and, you know, and I want to play my dad this number. I don't know if I can. And he said, Sharon, there won't be a dry eye in the house. And he said, look for the ones really sobbing because they'll be the musicians, you know. And it's like... It became not about me again, thank God, you know, because I need a little perspective there. Um, so we got, we got to send my dad off, you know, and there was nothing that, I mean, I didn't get to say goodbye, but somebody said, gee, Sharon, he had an awful lot of hellos, and that was because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And my dear sweet mom is coming out for my 25th birthday, and I get to spoil her rotten, and we all get to spoil her rotten. And I'm so pleased to be of good standing in that family again. My dad raised a great bunch of kids. I am so pleased that they come to me. They come to me with their hopes and dreams. They come to me and share. They come to me with their intimacies. They come to me now. And it's only because of God's grace and Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to let you know that, you know, that my heart is full. And from the tip of my head to the tip of my toes, I'm God's kid. And I hope you'll keep your link strong in this chain called Alcoholics Anonymous because the person beside you might need it today or tomorrow. And you might need their strength the next day after that. I want to thank you for having you and tell you I love you very much.